happening, everybody? Do you wish to be made well? Miracles in John's Gospel are called signs. Uh, Today we're looking at the third sign that our author, John, gives us in his Gospel. As we've already seen repeatedly in this series, although Jesus did a vast number of miracles during his earthly ministry, John picks just seven for us to look at in closer detail. But why those miracles? Why those seven signs? Well, John doesn't tell us specifically. We have to work it out. Today's sign has a lot in common with the previous two. Well, for a start, in common with the previous two signs, um, the water turned into wine and the healing of the royal official's son, in common with those signs, this one wasn't recorded in the other Gospels. We wouldn't know about it unless John wrote it down for us. Today's sign also has in common with the previous, uh, the previous one sign the fact that Jesus heals someone. He healed, in the last sign, the royal official's son. And actually, fully one-fifth of all the material in the Gospels is concerned with Jesus healing people miraculously. It was one of the hallmarks of his ministry. This miraculous healing ministry is well attested by Christian, Jewish, and Roman sources. Jesus healed hundreds, probably thousands, of people miraculously, and that's an historical fact. But today's miracle differs markedly from the first two, the turning of water into wine and the healing of the royal official's son. It differs insofar as in this sign, nobody asks for Jesus to do something. Nobody asks for Jesus' intervention. No, rather in this sign, Jesus takes the initiative rather than responding to the request of others. Well, John sets the scene for us in verses 1 and 2. In verse 2 of chapter 5, John describes the locale, using the present tense, showing us that John is writing this before the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And he tells us about the pool and the colonnades like we don't know, which we don't because this is consistent with what we do know about this book, that John is probably writing this book in the city of Ephesus, uh, which is in modern-day Turkey, for an audience of Christians of both Jewish and Gentile background, many of whom would never have been to Jerusalem. So they don't know. Well, John tells us Jesus has gone up to a festival. He's gone up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals, but John doesn't tell us which one. And Jesus seeks out a place that, by way of local tradition, was the correct place to go if you were permanently and or severely disabled and incapacitated with respect to work. Jesus may have healed many people that day. We don't know either way. Well, Jesus meets a man who has been unable to get up without assistance for 38 years. We have no idea what his condition was. He could have been any number of things, accident, disease, illness, the result of an attack. We don't know. Jesus asks him, do you want to get well? 
Now, um, the verb used here for healing is not the usual verb that you'd find in the Bible. The usual word for healing in the Greek of the New Testament is actually the same word for salvation. So that, for example, most of the time, uh, the phrase, your faith has healed you, is identical in Greek to your faith has saved you. Jesus doesn't ask this man if he wants to be healed, healed, saved. No, rather, the verb here means to be made whole. Do you want to be healed, made whole? Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made whole? And actually, the question shouldn't surprise us. Uh, In the other three Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see that Jesus doesn't heal people against their will. He asks them what they would like him to do for them. Or uh, he asks if he can heal them. And that question, making sure he has somebody's permission before he goes and heals someone, that's an, Im- that's an important question. In practical terms, disabled people, the, the, the blind, the lame, for example, they actually made a living by way of their disability. They were beggars. But beggars formed and they, they, they did an important role in the community. Typically, the beggar made a great fuss of you as you gave them money, bestowing blessings on you loudly in the name of the Lord and shouting loudly how righteous and godly this person is who's just given me money. What a fine, upstanding fellow. And such honor in an honor-shame culture had material rewards, so it was financially worthwhile being so publicly honored. It, It worked both ways. Jesus actually refers to this tradition in his Sermon on the Mount when he says, So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. So actually, if you healed somebody, you could take away their livelihood. Um, This cultural situation is is presented comically and semi-accurately in the half a denarii for an ex-leper scene in Monty Python's The Life of Brian. Hands up if you're familiar with that scene. Half a denarii for an ex-leper? Half a denarii for an Uh, ex-leper? The beggar in that scene is an ex-leper who complains to Brian that actually he used to make quite a good income as a leper until Jesus miraculously healed him without so much as a buy your leave. What's accurate is that you could take a man's livelihood away from him by healing him. What's inaccurate is that the idea that Jesus healed people without asking their permission. He did. He asked their permission. Do you, do you want to be made whole? What can I do for you? Well, this man replies, verse 7, Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, somebody else goes down ahead of me. The crippled man's reply is interesting. He, He doesn't answer the question. He doesn't answer the question Jesus asks him. All he needed was to say yes or no. 
do you want to be healed? It's a straightforward question. But instead of answering the question, he gives an explanation of why it is that he isn't healed. Now, obviously there was a tradition associated with the pool. The tradition is obvious from the man's reply, but you'll notice in the footnotes of your, of your pew Bible uh, that, uh, that the footnotes attest to the fact that obviously some of the ancient scribes felt it necessary to add the explanation into the text itself. The tradition was this. Occasionally, the waters in this pool became agitated. The local belief was that this was an angel stirring the water. And the idea was the first person into the water, after it had been stirred, would be healed. Uh, To some degree, this text asks us to compare that tradition with Jesus. And it gently hints that maybe sometimes the first person into the water was not entirely healed. They came out of the water going, I've been healed, I've been healed. But a few hours later, perhaps they were lying there again. And, and actually, what kind of tradition is that? You know, that actually it's there for healing sick people, but actually only the strongest gets healed. What kind of tradition is that? Well, that was the tradition. But here's the man's explanation. I don't have a friend to help me get in. The man presumably offers an explanation which is functioning as an excuse rather than just answering the question because actually he didn't hear a question. What he heard was an accusation, an accusation from which he needed to defend himself. What Jesus said to him was, do you want to get well? But what the man heard was, you've got to be kidding me. How long have you been lying there? 38 years? That's pathetic. What's the matter with you? Don't you want to get better? Now, we remember, because it's important to remember, that's that's not what Jesus said. Jesus just asked a question. But that's what the man heard. He heard an accusation and he offered an excuse. Feeling like he must have been being accused of something, the man defends himself. And his defense is a common defense. I'm the victim of factors outside of my control. This isn't my fault. I'm powerless. I'm a cripple without a friend in the whole wide world. It's not my fault. In in all of the gospel accounts, this is as close as we now get to a miracle performed without informed consent, without permission. Because although the man hasn't answered Jesus' question, Jesus takes his explanation as an invitation for a compassionate response, and he gives him a compassionate response. Whether or not it was what he wanted, Jesus heals him. The man is neither willing nor unwilling to be healed by Jesus. It is just something that happens to him. Notice he has no faith in Jesus. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. He has no idea. And his statements reveal that he continues to place his confidence in the future possibility of a dunking in the pool. As far as he's concerned, that remains his best hope of healing in the future. So then, what is about to happen takes him completely by surprise. He is healed, ready or not. And the man was healed. He was made whole. A total, 
radical and complete instantaneous healing and recovery. No need for physio or rehab. After a 38-year break, he's able to just straight away get up, pick up, carry, and go. This is astonishing. And that's exactly what he does. He gets up, picks up, carries, and goes. Now, insofar as this man is walking and carrying his mat, he is obeying Jesus. However, John, our author, now tells us that the day that this took place on was a Sabbath day. Carrying anything big or heavy was just no doubt about it. It was absolutely going to immediately attract the attention of the authorities. It was going to immediately attract the attention of the Pharisees who functioned as Jerusalem's religious police, Israel's Taliban. They now question him. This time the question isn't a question. This time the question is an accusation. You're breaking the law. Which law? Well, commandment number four of the Ten Commandments reads, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Is the man working? No, actually, he's not. This man is not working because he doesn't earn his livelihood by carrying cots around. If that was his job and he earned money that way, oh, yeah, sure, okay, yeah, maybe he'd be breaking the Sabbath. But he's not. No, rather, what he's doing is he's going home. He's not breaking the law, but he is breaking a tradition built on a law. He is breaking a human rule based upon a divine command. But for the Jewish religious leadership, that's the same thing. And in fact, it's their rule he's breaking, so it's their authority that he is challenging. The man has a ready defense for this accusation. It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. It's, it's the man who healed me. He told me to do it. He made me do it. Interestingly, the Jewish leaders don't respond with, who is this fellow who healed you? No, rather they respond with, who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? They deliberately ignore the fact that a healing miracle has just taken place, an, ex an astonishing, extraordinary miracle. Why would they do that? Why would they not hear that? Why would they ignore that? Well, as readers of the Gospels, we already know the answer. The Pharisees are hostile to Jesus and his ministry. Fortunately for the healed man, though, they let him off the hook and they let him go, perhaps because they could see that this man was useless to them in their desire to prosecute Jesus. But then Jesus finds him. Uh, Jesus finds him, not the other way around. He didn't go looking for Jesus, which actually would have been a wise thing to do. No, Jesus has to find him, finds him in the temple, and invites him to see. See, you are well again. See, understand the sign. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. Now, it's, it's not obvious what these words mean, and a range of interpretations are possible, but without question, Jesus is asking the man to understand that the miracle has placed him in a place of decision. He's got a decision to make. 
Now that you've been made whole, how will you respond? It is possible that the man misunderstood Jesus' words as some kind of a threat. Because the man does respond, and he responds quickly. In fact, he has a response all worked out. He goes straight to the police and dobs in Jesus. Well, that's one way of responding. So what does this sign mean? Well, unlike the first two signs, Jesus himself gives us the answer. And at length, when the authorities catch up with Jesus and interrogate him, his response is, verse 17, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. That's what the sign means. And we're going to look at that conversation in detail next week. But for this week, let's consider carefully the question, do you want to get well? Do you want to be made whole? Now, if, if you work in a caring profession uh, where you're concerned for the welfare of other human beings, perhaps you're, you're a doctor or a psychologist or a physio or an OT or perhaps you're a chaplain or a teacher or a lawyer or a nurse, perhaps you're a pharmacist, or perhaps you're a parent. Um, if you're concerned for the welfare of, of others, you'll hear this question as being a very significant question. And the reason why you'll understand the significance of this question is that regularly, as human beings, we are our own worst enemy. And not on every day, and certainly not with every person, no way, I'm just not, not with everyone, not at all. But there are days and there are people when the caring professional might scratch their head in disbelief and ask the patient or the client, do you actually want to get better? Really? And I've picked up a saying somewhere from someone, which is, people would rather be right than healed. And it's often true. People would rather be right than healed. What does that proverb mean? Well, it means that in caring for people, it's only too common to find people refusing to acknowledge that the real reason why their life is so bad is that they're refusing to take responsibility for it. What they do then is to identify the origin of their difficulties is completely outside of themselves, beyond their control. It's not my fault. Life has been so hard on me. I'm not to blame for my circumstances. It's fate, cruel fate. Woe is me. I'm just a poor, sick cripple without a friend in the whole wide world. I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. Well, I'm trying my very hardest to get in. Someone goes on down ahead of me. Oh, the injustice. Cruel, cruel world. Right now you may be thinking that I'm making fun of someone who deserves our sympathy. Well, I am making fun of him. And that's because he's me. And he might also be you, but he is most certainly us. By the time I was 40 years of age, I knew in my heart that I was still single because there was something wrong with me. I didn't know what that was. And even though I was desperate to get married, I knew there was a problem within me. 
Some people said that it was because I was too picky, and I knew that wasn't quite right. Good observation, wrong conclusion. I didn't know what it was, but I suspected that I wouldn't be able to work it out. I wouldn't be able to work out what was wrong with me without professional help. I suspected that. I also suspected that getting fixed, that getting healed, was going to be enormously painful. I was right on both counts. In 2006, I had what used to be called a nervous breakdown, and I received professional help. My psychiatrist knew what was wrong with me, and he also knew how to fix me. But I had to commit myself to the long, slow, hard, and difficult process of unlearning wrong ways of thinking in order to reprogram my brain. His method was a Christianized kind of version of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. If not for that particular man, I am absolutely sure. That I would not have been able to manage a stable, mature relationship with Jo when I met her six years later in 2012. And Jo was, of course, the right person at the right time. But before 2006, I was single because there was something wrong with me. And the question for me was whether or not I wanted to be healed, whether or not I wanted to be whole. Because some single adults, not all, not all, but some single adults, they would rather be right than healed. They would rather they would rather continue to believe that all men are beeps and that all women are psychos, rather than deal with the altogether more painful and humiliating reality of how it is that they themselves are destroying their own opportunities for mature, stable relationships. People would rather be right than healed. Um, Channel Nine, by the way, Channel Nine has gone to the trouble of collecting a group of such people and then smashing them together at super high velocities, as though in some nightmarish particle accelerator, and calling the resulting television program "Married at First Sight." I believe that the makers of this program ought to, and probably will, face criminal charges and lengthy jail terms for the abusive. And cynical way in which they are making money from setting people up for disaster—people who have a proven track record of not being able to make relationships work—and then setting them up to do it all over again for our entertainment. But actually, the reason they're doing it is to raise advertising revenue. It's not good entertainment. It's heartbreaking. Please don't watch it. Well. In this third sign, the man who has been disabled for 38 years, to some degree, is everyone. He's all of us. He is well. Is he responsible for his condition? We don't know. We don't know. We can't possibly know. But a couple of things suggest that he could be. His defensiveness, and the words "stop sinning" or something worse might happen to you. Are at least consistent with the notion that, in some way, he was responsible for his predicament. But ultimately, of course, ultimately, collectively, corporately, we are all responsible for all of our problems. Back in the garden, we sinned, and we each continue with that program. Sin is ignoring God and breaking His rules. 
turning away so as to go our own way. And so, if you'll pardon me a cliché, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. This is true even of global environmental problems that actually force us to face greed and injustice, as well as of disease and disability, as well as, of course, relational dysfunction and breakdowns. Actually, it's all our fault. What is God doing about it? Sign one, water into wine. Jesus is the giver of joy who takes away at the cross our shame and guilt. Sign two, the healing of the Son. Jesus is the giver of life who saves us from death at the cross. Sign three, coming, ready or not. God is healing us in Christ Jesus, ready or not. Jesus entered this world as an uninvited and unwelcomed guest. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. The man healed by Jesus in today's text, he regards Jesus as an enemy from start to finish, someone who judges, someone who accuses, someone who threatens. He is completely in the dark with respect to Jesus, even though he was healed by him after 38 years of illness. And at the cross, we too are healed. By his stripes, we are healed. In fact, you know, every human being who ever lives will rise at the resurrection of the dead. Everyone, by virtue of the cross. Everyone, by virtue of Christ's sacrifice. Everyone will rise at the resurrection. But not everyone will enter into eternal life. Not everyone will enter into eternal life. And in hell, people will continue to complain about what a complete beep God is and how it's not their fault. The man in this text, text is a faithful picture of all humanity. Paul puts it this way in Romans. While we were still God's enemies, that's when he saved us through the death of his son. In other words, God saved us unwittingly, unwillingly. We didn't contribute. We didn't help. Actually, we obstructed. We didn't know what was happening at the time. No one did. We were enemies of God at that time, believing God to be against us and believing that a rebellion against him was somehow right and true. Jesus came to save us, even though our predicament was all our fault. Paul continues, now that we're God's friends through the cross, we can be absolutely sure that we're going to be saved forever through the Son's resurrection. And John continues, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So here are questions for us to consider carefully in our own time and as the basis for our own prayers. Firstly, do you want to be made whole? Spiritual, emotional, and physical healing begins and ends with coming to Jesus. 
although don't discount Jesus using a good shrink or physiotherapist along the way. And secondly, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Are you God's friend? Is God still your enemy? If so, why is God still your enemy? What are you holding on to that you need to let go of? We switch, from being, we switch from being God's enemy to being God's friend by believing in Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And now... May the Lord Jesus Christ bless you and keep you. May the Lord Jesus make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord Jesus turn his face towards you and give you peace with healing in his wings. Amen.